Uh, so we're centering on Joseph's life. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 38. Well, you know, back in the 1970s, my friends and I were working out our faith and our walk with the Lord as new adults. We were young. One of the things I remember is that we could be very excited about our relationship with the Lord this week or this month and then be very discouraged the next because we felt we had let the Lord down by our recent sins. Jerry, one of my friends, told me he prayed the night before about his lack of faithfulness. Lord, he said, do you want a divorce? Because you can have one. Not theologically possible. But has there been a time that you felt your sin so offended God that he was discouraged by you? That he may have put you on a shelf thinking you might be a useless project, couldn't be used? That he was just tolerating you? Can we change our active relationship with God by failing? This morning we're going to read about a man who failed. And more than that, he quit on God. And we will see what God did with him. You're going to be surprised. Genesis 38 is one of those chapters that's challenging. It involves odd behavior and that just makes it confusing. It makes it hard to interpret. Through observation and context, we're going to try to shine some light on it for you this morning. Genesis 37 which Julie spoke on last week, ends with Joseph being sold to Egypt. And then it says that Potiphar uh, bought him, who was an important member of Pharaoh's staff. You go over Genesis 38, and you look at the beginning of 39, and it says, it begins with Joseph being bought from the Ishmaelites by Potiphar. So there is no time in between the end of 37 and the beginning of 39. And this story is stuck here. What is the purpose of chapter 38? It appears to have nothing to do with Joseph. So maybe I can tentatively label this week Genesis 38. So we're just going to tentatively call this Judah and Tamar instead of a Joseph series. We'll see how that goes. But before we go any further, let's pray and then we'll get into the text. Lord, your word is always a challenge, and uh, we are so grateful, not only that we're in your family, but you've given us the Holy Spirit, and we want more than anything this morning to lift you up, and in that process, we would, uh, we want also for you to take these truths and sink them deep into our hearts. We're grateful for this opportunity in your name, amen. So let's take a look at Genesis 38, verses uh, 1 through 8. And it came to pass about that time that Judah departed from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite, whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. For time's sake, I'll just tell you, they had three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. We pick it up again. Now Judah took a wife for Era, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. 
Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up offspring for your brother. And I'll just fill in here because the children uh, would maintain the brother's name and inheritance. Onan didn't want to do that, and he prevented conception. And the Lord took his life also. Well, what a start. Looking at the first paragraph, how did Judah end up leaving the family? I thought this Jacob and 12 brothers thing was a, was a unit. Well, it goes back a little bit. And briefly, the beginning of it happened back when Joseph had his dreams in the last chapter. As Julie told us then, God gave great promises to Abraham. And then in addition to the retelling of those promises, certainly from child, parent to child, down through the generations, God continued to communicate with each successive generation directly, right on down through Isaac and Jacob. And now God had given this new generation a sign. He sent two dreams to Joseph. We know the brothers were already jealous of Joseph because he was the favorite. He was uh, Joseph. They had different mothers. Uh, the Reuben, Simeon, Issachar, and Judah were uh, children of Leah, Jacob, uh, Joseph, and then later we'll find Benjamin were children of Rachel. So they already were jealous because Joseph was the favorite, and now they were enraged that he was claiming God had chosen him out. Julie related the story that when they found an opportunity, they uh, conspired to kill Joseph, and they threw him into a pit to deal with him later. And Judah, eventually, Judah, this is why I bring this up. This is the guy we're talking about in our chapter. Judah's the one that eventually convinced the other brothers to sell Joseph to a passing caravan instead of killing him. I think his words were something like, why shouldn't we make some money on this since we're going to do this anyway? Reuben, the eldest of all the brothers, son of Leah, planned to rescue Joseph from the pit sometime later and send him home. He was crushed when he returned to the group to find Joseph already sold and gone. Well, brothers had no option at this point. They smeared Joseph's coat with goat's blood and deceived Jacob into thinking the boy was dead. Well, then at the beginning of chapter 38, where we are now, Joseph leaves his family for Canaanite territory. Why he did this, we cannot know for sure. But maybe he just couldn't be around the family anymore. Maybe Reuben just couldn't stop giving him an accusing glare. Maybe it was Judah's own guilt as he watched his father suffer under the grief of his lost son. Whatever the case, he went off to a Canaanite area and settled down to life apart from his brothers. Settled down, got married, had three kids. Life was rolling along. So Jacob's family was disintegrating. Joseph lost to them. And Judah abandoning them. So in chapter 38, how does God begin to make himself felt? First, he took Er's life. We're not told why it happened, only that Er was evil. 
We would love to have more details in the text of Scripture and the narratives. But you know, the narratives are written in a particular way to get across the point that God wanted to get across. Because we don't have these details here, mean it's, it's not significant to the flow of what's happening uh, as to exactly how it happened, how he died, and exactly what evil we're talking about. Second, Judah instructs Onan to marry Tamar. It was a compulsory marriage so that Ayer's line will continue. But Onan refuses to give up his child to create a child with Tamar whose would have Ayer's name and receive Ayer's inheritance and continue the line of his brother Ayer. He did not complete the sex act and prevented conception. I don't like, I, I, I ruthlessly cut stuff out of messages when I give them, but I, I couldn't cut this little piece because every commentator seemed to mention it. And let me pose it as a question. Compulsory marriage can be found in Deuteronomy. But I don't think Judah was obeying that law. The reason is I'm wondering how Judah, living about 500 years before the law was given at Sinai, would be obeying a law that was given at Sinai. So that confuses me. The the answer I've come up with is that we do know from history that in societies that are kind of clan-based, which Israel was until it became a full-fledged nation, you know, you have the clans, the head of the clan, head of this part of the clan, and so on, and they uh, forbid to marry outside of the clans so that when you have somebody who's widowed, it just makes sense to keep the clan going, to keep it healthy, keep all the lines intact, that you have a practice like this. And it may well have been sort of a, a rule uh, around the area. It certainly was a practice and certainly what, what Judah pursued. I think it made sense in that context, and it's, it's uh, probably why it was also picked up. God decided to put it in the law for Israel. Again, we're not told how his death happened. Obviously, that detail is not important to the point of the chapter either. Well, let's look at the next set of verses. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid he too may die like his brothers. Yeah, I think so. You think? Possibility? So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now after a considerable time, Shua, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. It was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not, he had not been given, she had not been given to him as a wife. Well, the third happening here is that Judah decides he's not about to give his last child to Tamar. On the the practical side, this defrauds and completely shames Tamar. 
childbearing was considered uh, just a, uh, a critical sign of blessing in general for women, and to be childless was a shame. Uh, also, I'm sure she was branded and cursed and maybe snickers behind her back for being somewhat of a black widow, not able to keep a husband alive. Judas seems unaware that his actions really do have similarities to Onan's. He was refusing out of self-interest to provide a child for the continuation of heir's line. He didn't want to lose this last and favorite, now favorite son, even if he wasn't before. Judah probably also didn't catch at the same, at least at this time, the irony that he now protected his favorite son, but he was unwilling to protect his father's favorite son, Joseph. Never mind that Joseph was the son of the promise that God certainly wanted to see protected. God is at work in the circumstances to get through to Judah. He's pursuing Judah. Fourth, the thing we see happening in this section. In an environment where women typically had few resources and few recourses available to them, Tamar hatches a plan to sit, veiled, in a place where Judah will pass by. So I'm thinking, either she was playing a very long shot uh, that Judah would proposition her and she was trusting God to make it happen, or if she was Canaanite, we don't know who she was, but, uh, you know, for some God to make it happen. Or Judah has some predictable habits that she's counting on for success. It could be that second. It seems like, uh, like a, a, a tough thing to go on a long shot for. But let's read the next section. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Come now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He said, Therefore, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and the staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose, departed, removed the veil, and put on her widow's garments. What goes on in the next few verses, Judah the next day sends Hiram, his friend, with a young goat up to Enam. But the prostitute could not be found anywhere. We know. Tamar put off that stuff, came back home, put on her widow's attire. Judah had no way of getting his seal and his cord and staff back. So Judah said to Hiram, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. So Judah propositions Tamar, not knowing it was her. God saw to it that this resulted in a pregnancy. See how weird this story gets? It gets weirder and weirder all the time. You know, the, this seal was a ring or a small cylindrical piece of limestone that was engraved with symbols. 
And so for business contracts, it was your identifying signature. They'd take a soft piece of clay, and you would roll this cylinder across it, and it would leave its indentations where it was carved. So it was a, it was a very important piece of identification uh, for a person. Uh, the cord is, frankly, unknown. Lots of speculation. The, this Hebrew word is used to indicate kind of a normal cord in most of its uses through the New Testament. So uh, could it have been also... Could it have been the cord that was used uh, to string the seal around a person's neck? Uh, could it have, have been special for, for Judah? I remember at camp, we always would take these vinyl strips and make these lanyards. Maybe he made a little lanyard for himself, and that's what was hit. You know, oh, Judah has that lanyard that he hangs his cylinder on. We don't know. But the staff, it was a tool for somebody tending flock. It was their stock and trade. It was certainly carved and would have, been, uh, would have been easily recognized as Judah's. So it's another very identifiable thing. Well, when Judah goes to pay, the prostitute's nowhere to be found. Tamar had tricked him in order to keep those personal items. You know, it's interesting to note that the last time Judah was involved with someone's possession... And a goat is when he smeared goat's blood on Joseph's coat in order to trick his father into thinking Joseph was dead. Now someone had tricked him. Another great irony that makes this whole narrative really compelling. God is continuing to pursue and press the buttons for Judah. Let's go to the next section. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she's also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out, let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I'm with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see. Whose signet ring and cords and staff are these? Judah examined them, recognizing them, and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. The rest of the chapter goes on to describe the birth of twins uh, from Tamar. The the, uh, firstborn of those you will find in Matthew listed in the genealogy of Christ. You have Judah, and then with Tamar as the mother, Perez, and it goes on down through the genealogy of Christ. So there's a significant connection of this Old Testament story uh, up into the life of Christ. We can't talk about everything this morning. Let's keep pursuing this idea of God going after Judah, chasing him down. The accusation against Tamar if you think for a moment about it, was entirely accurate. She did exactly what the accusation said. Judah's call for her death was not an uncommon thing in their day. But she was prepared for the moment, for that particular moment. 
to make an appeal to Judah. Apparently there wasn't any trial connected with this thing. It says as she was being brought out, she sent these things to Judah saying, hey, examine these. Might be enlightening. So when she sent the seal, the cord, the staff to Judah, she was not suggesting she was innocent of the charges. She was not putting up a defense. She simply sent the items to Judah and asked him to examine them and think or rethink his judgment. Items that were instantly recognizable as his. You know, what you don't hear in this narrative is because New Hope Chapel has decided to chop up this story of Joseph into a number of messages. I think we'd hear different things if we had, or we might not hear much beyond snoring, if we had one eight-hour session and we went through the whole thing to hear. But if you go back just 29 verses earlier, in the narrative, the exact same words and pattern show up. Please examine, and a person examine them. The word means to examine so as to recognize. Look at it, you know, scrutinize it, and recognize it. And where that pattern is used is when the brothers came to Jacob with the coat to cover their crime. They asked Jacob to examine carefully Joseph's coat. We found this coat. Please examine it to see whether it's your son's tunic or not. And Jacob says, I I examine it and my son has apparently been eaten by a wild animal. The identical wording they used to hide the truth of what they had done from Jacob. To send his thinking in the wrong direction was used 29 verses later in the story of Judah and Tamar here in this narrative, for, for Judah to uncover the truth of what he has done. So one was to create a sense of falsehood in Jacob's mind. And this set of circumstances coming to Judah in his lap, what they did was uncover the truth. This is God, ironically, in this ironic sense of coming after Judah, pointing this out. Uh, It's possible that Judah might have flashed back to that incident when he heard those very words, separated in time by 20 years or so, maybe more. But, But the same wording in this narrative, it was meant to be heard by the original hearers of this. God is again ratcheting up the pressure. I believe it's unlikely that Tamar knew the narrative of the bloody coat. It seems like the last story... Judah would tell his children or his daughter-in-law. So I don't think he planned this connection or that she planned this connection. God did. He planned it. He pursued Judah by using it to bring Judah to a decision point. Should he continue to live with deception, running from God, trying to run his own life? And here, in this particular case, see another innocent not innocent. Another person suffer because of his duplicity. It's God orchestrating the moment like a maestro. Every event planned to prod Judah to wake up 
and turn back to God. Apparently, Judah sees God's pattern and sees God's hand step by step bringing it to this point, and he owns his sin and failure, declaring, she is more righteous than I. Now, you may think I've gone too far. I do sometimes. How do we know this was more than just letting Tamar go and admitting the fact he withheld Shelah? I've sort of pulled in this whole idea of his crime, his sin from 37. All we have seen are a couple of parallels and some identical language. Well, there are two things. Number one, first, Judah's story not only has parallels to what happened in chapter 37, but in the section next week, chapter 39, where we pick up Joseph's stories. It has an unmistakable parallel to that. I told David I'm not going to steal too much of his thunder from next week's message. But here is a chart to look at quickly to make the point. In 38, Judah separated from his family. In 39, we start off with Joseph having been carried down to Egypt, now separated from his family. Judah, the separation was probably connected to his guilt. For Joseph, he was innocent. Judah was free physically. Joseph was enslaved. What I haven't put on here is Judah was bound and in the prison of living with this guilt and running away from God. Joseph had a free heart because he was looking for what God wanted. We come to a little later in Judah's story. He yielded to sexual temptation of a woman who spoke the truth about him using his possessions, the seal and the staff, as evidence against him. Joseph resisted sexual temptation of a woman who falsely accused him using his possession, his tunic, as evidence against him. Here here it is. Judah imprisoned by sin and then... uh, Uh, Joseph imprisoned in an Egyptian jail. Judah was being pursued by God all the way through chapter 38. Joseph was being protected by God all the way through his story. God worked his plan and restored an individual, Judah, to himself. God worked his plan in Joseph's life and preserved a nation for himself. I think these two chapters sit the way they do Because it's showing us something additional about God and what his priorities are and how he works. The second thing I'm going to show you is the final twist to our story. I told you there would be a surprise. The next time Judah's name comes up, does anybody know? I'm sorry, one more time. Yes, exactly. Gold star. I wish I had... (laughs) Wish I had something to reward you. I have a hanky that's relatively clean. (laughs) Yes, Judah comes up. So we saw him in 37. He's the focus of things in 38. And it's over in 43 that he convinces Jacob to let Benjamin go with the brothers back down to Egypt. You remember there's this back and forth. I don't want to steal somebody else's message. But there's this back and forth between Egypt and the land of Canaan, and, and Joseph keeps testing the brothers. And on one of the, the second trip, he says, 
bring that younger brother Benjamin down. And they go back and Jacob says, are you kidding me? I've already lost Joseph. I'm not going to lose Benjamin. And, and Judah says, I will be responsible. My, I will be on the line for this. Judah's back with a family. Judah's involved. Judah is part of this family and how it's moving forward. Then in, in 44, Judah, so they go down there with Benjamin. See, I'm stealing stuff. Anyway, the, without saying more, the bottom line is this second-in-command in Egypt tells the brothers, I've decided Benjamin needs to stay here as my slave. And Judah asked to speak to him. And he comes up, and it's a very long narrative. Let me give you a few phrases out of it. But Judah approached him and said, let me speak a word in your ears. And he starts telling him this history. My brother is dead. I really had to talk my father into letting this younger brother come down here. Uh, and my father loves him. Uh, and you, you know, and, but then we came down here, and now you say, uh, now that I see him, uh, unless you bring this younger brother, you won't see my face again. And now you're saying, gee, I want him as my servant. You don't understand. This other one that, that went out, my father said, oh, surely he's been torn to pieces. I haven't seen him since. If you take this one from me and any harm comes to him, uh, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. His life, and Judah says, my dad's life is bound up with this child. When he sees the lad's not with us, he will die. So I said I would be a surety for the lad that I would bring him back. Now, now he gets to his bottom line with Joseph. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad's not with me? For fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father. Judah was a transformed man. Again, I can start drawing parallels Judah was the one that got Joseph sold. If Judah hadn't have convinced the brothers, Reuben would have come back. Joseph, uh, Joseph would have you know, been sent back chastened to his father. God works on Judah, brings him around. Judah makes this uh, declaration uh, that, um, that he is, um, uh, that he's going to, uh, that, that he was not righteous. And he comes back to the Lord, comes back to the families, engaged with the family. He takes the leadership to the point where he's saying, if somebody's going to stay down here as a slave, let me give my life to be a slave and let Benjamin go free. The exact opposite of what he did with Joseph. He said, hey, Let's sell him here so he can go down and be a slave, and we can make some money on the deal. That's a transformed life. That's what the narrative is trying to communicate to us. God's in the business of pursuing us, and he's in the business of transforming lives. So if you step back and see the whole picture of God working in Joseph's life and Judah's life, it's clear that he's a tireless pursuer. 
He was reaching into the prison of guilt and shame Judah was trapped in so that he would own his responsibility, be set free and transformed. He worked in Joseph's life, who apparently was open to God's movement, and he transformed Joseph and used Joseph in an amazing way. God is that relentless pursuer. There's a poem, it's very famous, The Hound of Heaven, written in the late 1800s, that depicts a guy running away from God and feeling this pursuit. Uh, there's an interesting sort of line in there where it, it talks for a moment, sort of backs away, and talks for a moment about this pursuer and describes it as an unhurried but deliberate moving forward. To the person running away, it just seemed like this hound of heaven was on them. But God is that relentless pursuer. He wants to transform us, and he'll pursue us to the ends of the earth to woo him, us to him. And it's whether we're running toward him or running away. There's no lost cause to our mighty God. So I need to run, and you need to run toward him today, and on Monday, and on Tuesday, and on and on. If you have been running away, maybe from some calling in your life, now's the time to turn around. Rick and I, for a short while after the service, will be over here by the communion table to your right in the front of the room if you want to talk or have someone pray with you. But let's pray now. Lord, help us to be soft towards you that our lives may reflect your character so that ultimately you may get the glory and that others may see you through us. Thank you for the story. Help us take that story to heart to always remember that you are the God who is pursuing. You never give up. And what you want for us is to transform us with your new life. We thank you in your name. Amen.